I love hearing about people's different Advent traditions setting out the, the manger scene. We, we lit our candles this morning. Um, the church I was born into and grew up in, we had a Advent wreath hanging from the ceiling. It was suspended on this little line. It took me forever to figure out that that was up in the attic and probably not a place that I was supposed to be up in the attic, but that's what happens. And uh, every Advent or every Sunday, they would light this candle with the, the stick thing. I don't know what that's called. But because it was suspended on this string, I always loved, and it, my brothers and I loved watching the people that would accidentally bump it on the way with a stick, and they would send the wreath spinning. And then they would be chasing the candle around trying to light it. There was one uh, taller gentleman in the church who usually was his responsibility to come and hold the wreath while they lit it then once that wreath started spinning. That was always something we looked forward to. As kids, it just it livened up the service for us. It was great. Um, new Advent traditions are fun to be learning about. Last week, we looked at the gospel according to John and how John wants to tell a bigger story of what's happening with God, the Son, taking on flesh and moving in or dwelling with us. This isn't the only place in Scripture that John tells us something about how he sees this Christmas story, Jesus coming as a baby into this world. So this morning I want to take a look at the mysterious cosmic Christmas that is told in the book of Revelation. We're continuing our unexpected Christmas series. Uh, we will continue this series actually through Christmas Eve. We'll be talking about the mysterious or the unexpected Christmas story. And Christmas Eve is just a great time for you to invite friends or family to come and join us here at Spring Creek on that evening uh, to hear a little bit uh, about Jesus and, and what this season is really about. Revelation chapter 12 is where we're looking this morning. As we come uh, to that text this morning, would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you for this season. We thank you for this time that we wait in expectation. And now we expect to hear from your word, to have our eyes open to uh, hope and to what you are doing in this world and even outside of this world. I pray that you would uh, speak to us this morning through me or despite me. In Jesus' name, amen. Revelation is often a very mysterious book to us. It's a, it's a book that's really unlike any other book in Scripture. There's a few other portions of Scripture that are similar to the feel of Revelation, but this is the only book that looks like this with all of these symbols and, and signs and numbers, and we often read it and we go, what on earth is going on? Revelation is a genre of literature that was popular in the ancient world a couple hundred years before Jesus and uh, about a hundred years after Jesus called apocalyptic literature. It's a little bit like our classic uh, science fiction stories, uh, Brave New World, Fahrenheit 451. I don't know if kids still have to read these kinds of books or not. Um, 
But these books were filled with symbols and, and um, uh, images of future things happening, but it was meant to be a critique of the world in which the authors lived. Revelation is a book filled with images that represent people and ideas that would have been more familiar to the people in the seven churches that John addresses this apocalypse to. John writes a bit of a coded message to Christians who are suffering persecution at the hands of a beastly empire. He tries to give hope to followers of Christ while reflecting on the nature of history, uh, reflecting on the, the whorish union between religion and politics and the problem of evil in the world. It's a little bit interesting to try and jump into the middle of Revelation because there's these series of images happening. Um, but we are starting at the beginning of a new series of images here in Revelation chapter 12. So let's look at this text that we have here this morning. It's about a new sign in the heavens if you look at verse 1. It says, a great portent appeared in the heavens. Portent is like a sign. Uh, this word portent is not one that we really use anymore. A sign appeared in the heavens. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. We hear this scripture about this woman who gives birth to a male son who will rule the nations, and there's a dragon who attempts to destroy the child, but the child is somehow miraculously rescued, and the woman escapes in the wilderness. The woman finds refuge and nourishment from God. And we read this scripture and we go, what on earth is going on? What is going on with this text? At the beginning we see this woman clothed with sun. She is radiant and beautiful. And she is standing with her feet on the moon. This is a symbol of some pagan religions that existed around the time that John is writing this. And so she has authority over these pagan religions. And she has a crown of 12 stars. In the long tradition of interpreting this scripture, sometimes the woman has been interpreted as Mary. Sometimes she has been interpreted as Israel, the people of God of the Old Testament. And sometimes she has been interpreted as the church, the New Testament church following Jesus. The great thing about John and the book of Revelation is we don't really have to pick one. All of these symbols have multiple meanings. We see Israel because there are 12 stars on this crown representing the 12 tribes of Israel. It is a group of people who births the Messiah. Remember, the Messiah was a Jewish hope. It was something that someone that the people of Israel longed for, hoped for, expected. This was their Savior. If we think of the birth pains that the people of Israel go to bring about the Messiah, experiencing all of those years of slavery in Egypt, going through the exile in Babylon. And then even after Babylon, they're conquered by Alexander the Great and they, they suffer under the rule of the Greeks. And now, 
during the time of Jesus, and during the book of Revelation, Rome is in charge. These people have suffered greatly, hoping, waiting for the Messiah to come. Of course, Mary is the most obvious uh, woman giving birth to a child that, w- that we're looking at. Mary and Joseph help us to understand the Jewishness of Jesus. Their family tree is completely Jewish. Their traditions are completely Jewish. They present Jesus at the temple eight days after his birth for circumcision. They attend festivals. They were very Jewish. Sometimes in a church that says, we have no creed but the New Testament, we only focus on the New Testament. We think, well, why, why is that Old Testament? Why is that old part important? Why do we need to know anything about that? Or I've heard people even say, why do I need to know anything about the Jewish world that Jesus lived in? Often we call that Second Temple Judaism. Why do I need to learn anything about that? I'm not Jewish. I'm Christian. I follow Jesus. You know, the Old Testament was the scripture that Jesus had. This was Jesus' Bible that he flipped to. In fact, the apostles all used the Old Testament to explain the gospel. They didn't have Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John at the very beginning to explain the gospel. They went back to the Old Testament to tell people about who Jesus was and how Jesus fulfills these promises. Jesus was Jewish. Going down to verse 3 then, another important sign appeared in heaven, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems. I I had to look, honestly I didn't know what a diadem was, and I've sung hymns with that word in it many, many times, and I didn't know what a diadem was. It's a crown. The NIV just says a crown. That's helpful. Seven diadems on his head. This great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his head is a symbol of power and evil, cunning force with great authority. And this dragon sits poised to swallow this child. Some scholars even think John is throwing in some other ancient mythology borrowed from Greeks or Romans. As John sits imprisoned on Patmos, he can look out and see other islands and and see other temples and, and places of worship. And he looks out and he's throwing some of this imagery of the Greeks and Romans into this vision that he sees. Satan sits ready to destroy this Messiah. But then look what happens in verse 5. And she gave birth to a son, a male child. Now we're starting to sound like Christmas. Who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was snatched away and taken to God and to his throne. This child that comes to rule the nations with an iron rod isn't about a brutal, violent rule. The word here for rule can also mean to shepherd or to guide the nations with a rod of iron. This rod of iron is a symbol of a ruler that is very capable and extremely strong. Revelation is a very bloody book. There's lots of 
gore and, and violence happening. But it is always the blood of the lamb that is opposed to the violence of the beast. The child comes to rule and to reign as the prince of peace, fully capable, incredibly strong, but never coercive, never forcing. The child gets snatched away before the dragon can devour the child, and the woman escapes to the wilderness. If you think back to the Old Testament and to the places where you see the wilderness showing up in Scripture, the wilderness is often a place of refuge, a place where people escape. The people of Israel escape Egypt, and they escape into the the wilderness. Uh, Elijah is being hunted down by the king, and Elijah escapes into the wilderness, and he is cared for, provided for by God sending birds with food for him to eat. But the wilderness is also a place of testing, a place where people go and their faith is tested. They wrestle with what it really means to follow God. Elijah is tested. The people of Israel are tested. Even Jesus is tested in the wilderness by Satan who shows up and tries to tempt him, tries to provide him with a shortcut, an easy way to become this powerful Messiah. The woman stays in the wilderness for 1,260 days. There's no need for you to go pulling out calendars. The numbers here are symbols, the same as the other more obvious symbols. Here, this symbol represents a limited time determined by God. The woman escapes into the wilderness for a limited amount of time. So what is going on with this passage? What does this mean? What possible implications does this have for us? And what does it have to do with Christmas? Well, just like John's prologue that we looked at last week, John chapter 1, John is trying to tell us a bigger story about the significance of the birth of Christ. See, Jesus enters the world as the fulfillment of the hopes and dreams of the people of Israel. A thoroughly Jewish Messiah born from the 12 tribes of Israel who comes to be the ruler of not just the people of Israel, but who comes to be the ruler of all nations. The baby comes into the world and Satan tries to destroy this Messiah. And if you think back to uh, Matthew and to Luke's version of the Christmas story, You might think of some ways that Satan tries to destroy this tiny baby in a manger. Herod tries to knock out any rival kings by having all of the babies two years and younger slaughtered. We call it the slaughter of the innocents. And yet, Jesus has been rescued. And where do they go? Where do Mary and Joseph go? They go to Egypt. They escape through the wilderness to Egypt. And they will return through the wilderness back to Nazareth. Of course, the temptation of Christ in the wilderness is another place where Satan is trying to destroy the Messiah. Ultimately, Satan thinks that he has won as Jesus dies on the cross. Bernard Eller 
uh, in his commentary on this section, writes, Satan is well aware that this child is the key to universal history. If he can get the babe, he's got the ball game. If he misses the babe, he loses everything. The child is born, and the dragon makes his grab, but he misses. The baby is snatched up to God, and it is all over. John is telling us this cosmic Christmas story. Not one that just takes place in Bethlehem, but one that has implications for all creation. As Satan makes this grab and he misses, the child goes to God and Jesus ascends following the resurrection to take the throne. And the woman goes into the wilderness. Here the woman continues to be the people of God, but that people of God now includes the people of Israel as well as those that are following Jesus. And in John, he doesn't divide the people of Israel and the church. These aren't separate groups. And they go into the wilderness to be protected, to find nourishment, but it's also a time of testing. I think we often tend to make Christmas or the story of Jesus, even our salvation, about something that is purely individual. And that's not all wrong. Jesus' life and death and resurrection does have incredible implications for us as individuals, but it also has implications for more than just what it means for Adam all. There's bigger implications. It has implications for all creation. It has big implications for humanity, even beyond our physical world. We see this wrestling of <clears throat> in the spiritual realm between those that are following the dragon and the, and the beast that are opposed to the people of God, and there's this spiritual battle that spills over into the physical world. So this Christmas story is huge, not just about Bethlehem. Jesus is born to be the ruler of nations. And I've talked over the last couple of months about this idea of Jesus being the king already. But this isn't always our experience. We'd love to wake up in the mornings and, and go, see, Jesus is the king. Look at that event. Jesus is the king. And sometimes we can do that. Sometimes there's little glimpses. But by and large, if we turn on the news, we don't go, look, Jesus is king. Some days things look far different, and we wonder if the dragon has actually destroyed the baby. We see natural disasters destroy lives. We see human-made disasters rip people apart. We experience systemic evils in the world of racism and sexism and ageism and failure to care for the poor, lack of regard for the foreigner, and all kinds of other ways that systems of this world seem to be tilted towards the dragon, towards the beast. Revelation as a whole, and certainly the rest of chapter 12, look at how the beast or the dragon continue to affect creation and humanity. The heavenly spiritual battle spills over into the world we see and the things we experience. And yet, 
Revelation consistently enforces the idea that Jesus is the King. That despite what we might experience, despite what we might see sometimes in this world, Jesus has already won the battle. You think of a blowout football game. I don't often use sports analogies, but somehow this one came to mind. Think of a blowout football game in which the game is already won. The game is in the bag. You might as well go ahead and put the W on the board for the winning team. The end of the game isn't in question. But there's still more time on the clock. During this time, it's possible that someone might suffer an injury. It's possible that the opponent might score some additional points. But the end of the game is already written. And like the woman who escaped into the wilderness for a God-limited amount of time, eventually time will run out on the dragon. And this is cause for hope. See, the book of Revelation was not written to be a Christian horror story or horror film. Sorry, Kirk Cameron. Instead, John writes a book of encouragement and hope to a church that is struggling. And as John writes to these Christians that are struggling, some are standing strong amidst the opposition that they are experiencing. Persecution is coming and they are just holding firmly to Jesus and John wants to encourage them and say, keep going, you're not hoping in vain some are wondering if it's really worth the struggle. Is it really worth going through all this persecution, all these hardships? Is it really worth it? John says, keep going. Keep going. And some Christians that John writes to, he calls lukewarm. And they're just going through the motions. They're just pretending. And John wants to encourage them that this hope is real. That Jesus has already defeated evil. John wants to encourage them that the Lamb of God who roars like a lion or a baby in a manger who carries a rod of iron to rule the nations, is actually on the throne, despite evidence to the contrary. At Christmas, we often hear about hope. When we talk about hope, and we throw this word around, maybe. And I wonder, what are we hoping for? I think we're hoping that the baby in the manger is really the king. We are hoping that the time of testing that we all experience, and we experience that testing in all kinds of ways. In what we experience in the workplace, we see um, families ripped apart, we experience financial hardships, marital stress, all kinds of ways that we experience testing. 
And we want to know that this wilderness, this testing, is only for a limited time. And we also want to hope that the king will come again. Who is your hope in this Advent season? Where are you looking for hope? This is more than a baby in a manger. This is more than a story that takes place in Bethlehem. This is about Jesus, the Son of God, who comes and conquers evil, conquers Satan. Satan's missed. He's missed his opportunity. This is the Messiah. This is the ruler of all nations that has come. As we close our service this morning, I invite you to uh, rise and body your spirit and turn in your blue hymnal to number 172.